Tonight, as we worship together on this Good Friday service, I want to turn our attention to Philippians chapter 2. From verse 6 to 8 will be our focus, but let me read for us beginning in verse 5 down to verse 11. This is what God's Word says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we ask now that as we have opened your word, that you would exalt your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We desire this evening to bow the knee and to confess with our lips joyfully that he is Lord, to come before the cross and behold his glory. Reveal his glory to us by the preaching of your word. In his most precious name we pray. Amen. Well, as we reflect on the cross of Christ on this Good Friday evening, we come to this passage in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul famously expounds the humiliation of our Lord's incarnation. In that the Lord Jesus descended from heaven, took on human flesh, and entered the world in order to accomplish the work of saving sinners. And here we see just how far God condescended and humbled himself to reach us. How, how low he had to stoop down in order to rescue us from our sin. And if you read these verses carefully, particularly verses 6 through 8, you'll notice that Paul writes it in such a way where it's like walking down a staircase, where each phrase progressively descends into deeper and lower humiliation until we reach the absolute bottom. Notice how he begins in verse 6, at the peak, at the summit, by making it crystal clear that Jesus Christ was not mere man, but he was and is the eternal God himself, the very form of God, he says. Now, in our modern English, the word form, as we use it today, it might sound like Paul's talking about, oh, he was just a shell of God or some external resemblance. But that's not how the word form was used in the first century. Rather, to, to be the form of something was to be the very embodiment of it, the, the thing itself. And so what Paul means here is that Jesus was the very being and embodiment of God because he was God, the creator himself, one with the Father, inseparable. But although he was equal with God because he was God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. Meaning, Although God the Son was rightfully entitled to his divinity, being co-equal and co-essential with the Father and Spirit as one God, he humbled himself by regarding his divinity as though he were not entitled to it, as though he had no claim to it, though he did. It's not that the Son of God ceased being God when he humbled himself. That's not possible for God to give up his divine nature, his Godhood. That's an oxymoron. 
but it's that he voluntarily renounced his right, his prerogative to exercise his godhood, his divinity. Rather than asserting it and wielding it for his own sake, he laid aside that rightful entitlement for the sake of sinners. That is incredible. That Almighty God would do such a thing when he owes us absolutely nothing. But even more, it says in verse 7, that he actually stepped down from his heavenly throne. He actually acted on that. He stepped down from his heavenly throne and emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Now this is an inconceivable act of self-abasement. For God, the, the master and Lord of heaven and earth, to take up the position of a servant is unthinkable. But notice how Paul clarifies and takes it yet another step further down. It's not just that God took the form of perhaps an angelic servant while still remaining within the bounds of the domain of heaven, the world of the divine, though that would have been enough to strike wonder in our hearts. But he stepped outside of that heavenly realm and entered into time and space, his created universe. God himself entered this fallen, unclean world. And if that were not enough, he entered the world, not as an angelic visitor, but he was born in the likeness of men, verse 7 says. God took on humanity and dwelt among sinners at their eye level as one of them. But if that were not low enough, verse 8 Being found in human form, that is, having humbled himself as a true human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, I know it's already bewildering that God would unite himself to human nature, that the creator would come down to his creatures as a creature. But here we are reminded that he submitted himself under the full experience of death the giver and sustainer of life himself. He was for a little while made lower than the angels so that by the grace of God, he might taste death, as Hebrews chapter two says. Now, you would think that we've reached the bottom. You would think that Paul would have stopped here, that this was the ultimate rock bottom, that God could not have stooped any lower. I mean, I can't think of anything lower than this, death. But notice how verse 8 ends. With one last phrase, one final step down to the lowest of the low. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Interesting. As humiliating and defeating as death may be, There was apparently something about the cross that was an even greater humiliation than just death. It's not just the fact that Jesus died, but the manner in which he died and all that was depicted and represented by the cross. This was the most appalling shame and disgrace that he came to endure. The cross is what marked the base 
of the infinite plunge down from the highest of heavenly glory. Well, what was it then about the cross that was so particularly humiliating? In what way was the crucifixion the utmost condescension and humiliation of God incarnate, even more so than death itself? Well, perhaps the best way for us to understand this is by way of compare and contrast. Namely, by first considering what kind of honor and glory was depicted through the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in contrast to what kind of dishonor and shame was depicted at the cross. Because remember, in the Old Testament, God had revealed himself through the tabernacle. The tabernacle, if you don't know, it was was a portable tent, essentially, which served as God's dwelling place where his glory would actually descend manifestly and his presence be upon it. And of course, the tabernacle later became the temple under Solomon's reign, which was then a permanent building, a permanent fixture instead of a movable tent. And so it was through the tabernacle And especially the Ark of the Covenant inside it, it was a box inside the inner sanctum of the most holy place, also called the Holy of Holies. It was through these constructed means that the nature and presence and glory of the infinite God was most intimately revealed to the people of Israel. Because remember, it wasn't just some ordinary room or tent or some pretty box, but God gave very precise specifications for the construction and arrangement according to the pattern that Moses was shown from heaven. God told Moses in Exodus 25, 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So this means that the design, the layout, the furnishing, everything was all meant to reveal something about how glorious God is to depict it for us pictorially. So what was the tabernacle like? What did it depict of God's majesty and glory? Well, once you walk in, into the holy place, not the holy of holies yet, but the holy place, the outer room, there was immediately to your left the golden lampstand. This this lampstand was shining light into this otherwise dark room because it was covered entirely so as to show that God is the light of the world. He is the giver and source of all knowledge and wisdom and truth. And in his presence alone, there is the hope of light and warmth in a dark and cold world. All that is conducive to life and well-being. In fact, remember how the lampstand, the golden lampstand, was shaped like a tree. With all these floral and garden-like aesthetics, with almond blossoms on each of the branches. And all of this was intentional to show that here was the presence of God, the Garden of Eden, paradise itself in his presence. And so the golden lampstand was essentially symbolizing the illuminating tree of life. Well, if that was on your left, then if you turn to your right, you would immediately see the table for the showbread also called the bread of the presence. And this bread was set continually before God day and night to show that he was the true and lasting food for his people. That in his presence, what the tabernacle was showing, the presence of God, that in his presence is the source of nourishment and sustenance. That God is the all-sufficient provider who deserves all thanks and praise from his creatures. 
And with this in mind, with the lampstand on the left and the bread of the presence on the right, right in front, stepping forward, there was the altar of incense, which would be lit day and night, and smoke would fill the room and arise to the skies, all to signify the prayers of God's people, rising up to God as incense, as David said in Psalm 141 too. And so this altar of incense was a vivid reminder that God is the one to whom all praise and thanksgiving and prayerful dependence is due. We need him for everything, for life, for breath, everything. Apart from him, we are nothing. Now, just behind the altar of incense to the front was the veil that separated the holy place, the outer room, from the most holy place, the inner room, the holy of holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was laid. But look, this veil, this was not some thin, sheer veil. It was a thick curtain, rather, completely blocking access to the most holy place, which the high priest could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. But even this veil, this curtain, was beautified. The door and gateway to God's immediate presence was exquisitely woven of blue, purple, scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And that veil, remember, it was embroidered with images of cherubim, these heavenly warriors who guarded the throne of God. And so look, this veil itself was something to behold. This multicolored celestial design was a reflection of supernatural, otherworldly beauty but such is the majesty of god that even the wall that guards his presence radiates and glows with heavenly glory and then finally once you actually dare to step through the veil inside the most holy place there was in it the manifest presence of god upon the ark of the covenant And this inner sanctum of the most holy place was really designed to represent a throne room, uh, the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because the exact place where God manifested his presence, it wasn't just anywhere in the room, but the exact place was on the mercy seat, which was a lid or a covering on top of the ark. God told Moses in Leviticus 16:2, for I will appear in the cloud right above the mercy seat. That was God's throne on earth. And it was from this mercy seat that God said in Exodus 25, 22, that he would meet with his mediator, Moses, at the time, and he would issue his commandments for the people of Israel from the mercy seat. In other words, this was his seat of command. This was the king's seat of authority from which he would reign over his people by his decrees. And that's why inside the ark were the Ten Commandments among other items, to testify of God's infallible, unfailing word. But not only that, remember how the ark was designed. We just talked about the cherubim on the veil, but the ark itself had two cherubim carved of pure gold, one on each side of the mercy seat, coming together with their wings overshadowing the mercy seat in the center. And and these warrior angels, that's what the cherubim were and are, These warrior angels, they're associated with the flaming sword guarding the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. They're called guardian cherubs in Ezekiel 28. Not to protect God, 
but to protect everyone from God. No one can just waltz into the king's holy presence and live. Perfect and pure light cannot coexist with any darkness, lest it swallow up darkness and destroy it. And so the majesty and wonder of these cherubim points to the infinite majesty and excellence of the Most High King, whose throne they guard day and night. In fact, that's why Psalm 99 verse 1 says that God sits enthroned above the cherubim. And David recognizes in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 2 that the mercy seat is the footstool of God the King. You see, all of the design and construction of the tabernacle and the ark, this was an architectural doxology exhibiting the glory and praiseworthiness of God. The very furnishing of the room cried out the echoes of heavenly praise, just as we see in Revelation 7, verse 12. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see, every single one of those items are designed to reflect each part of that praise and doxology. This is who God is. This is the true glory of Jesus Christ, God the Son. He is the radiance, the effulgence of the Father. Christ is the very beams, the photons that radiate the brilliance of divine majesty and essence. See, this is Jesus' true heavenly glory. Being one with the Father and the Spirit, the eternal triune sovereign God Almighty. But what happened 2,000 years ago on Good Friday? What was being displayed at the cross in contrast to everything we've just talked about and observed from the tabernacle? The Son of God, the very glory of the Father on the cross, His glory was defaced to the uttermost because everything that I've just described was turned upside down. And so infinite dishonor and shame was put on display because infinite honor and glory was vandalized in the most heinous manner. Because although Jesus is the light of the world, the living golden lampstand, the the tree of life incarnate, there he hung on the tree of death, the wooden cross. As Galatians 3.13 reminds us, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's what the cross was called, a tree. Though he was the bread of life, the true incarnate bread of the presence, because he was the very presence of God come down from heaven, there he hung on the cross, himself starved of food and drink. The giver and sustainer of life was suffering the extremities of human deprivation and was dying. And he was only given sour wine as a form of ridicule. Although he was the God to whom men should lift up their eyes and let all their prayers and praise arise like incense on that mount of crucifixion, 
Jesus was lifted up to be a spectacle of scorn and shame. People looked up at him and spoke not their prayers, not their praises, but curses and derisions. The altar of incense had become the altar of insult. And remember how in the tabernacle, even the veil that covered the ark and separated the most holy place, even that veil was beautiful, woven in excellence, worthy of awe and admiration. But the veil of Jesus' humanity, which concealed his true divine glory, this most precious veil of his flesh was torn apart, mangled, shred like meat in a butcher shop. His own flesh, his precious flesh, the Son of God incarnate, was spit on, bruised, stricken by filthy hands, punctured with nails. Remember also how the Ark of the Covenant was designed with two cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat, their eyes fixed onto the middle, thus turning all of our attention there to the footstool of God. These magnificent celestial beings, they're glorious to be sure, but they're positioned there with their angelic glory to point to and magnify the source of glory in the middle to the throne of God. But on the cross, here was the throne of God incarnate, Yet it wasn't cherubim to his left and to his right, but instead, two vile, guilty criminals, one to his left, one to his right. And they were real criminals, suffering shamefully for the lowlifes that they were. And their shame pointed to and magnified the embodiment of shame, the man in the middle cross who was not wearing his rightful crown of glory, but he was wearing the crown of thorns. You see, the cross was the utmost abject humiliation of the Son of God. Because everything about the cross, all of the circumstances and all of the positioning of every piece for this public exhibition, it was shame upon shame unto the one who is, in fact, the glory of all glories. In fact, that's why it was so symbolic that Jesus was stripped of his clothes. Because there's nothing more fundamentally shameful than that. To be naked in public before everybody. You know, I I know that in various paintings that depict the crucifixion, Jesus is seen hanging on the cross with a little white loincloth. But you know, that's probably not accurate as to what really happened. And the only reason why people painted it that way was out of respect and decency. But John 19.23 tells us that even his tunic, his undergarments, were taken from him. Jesus hung on the cross for hours before the public eye, bare naked and ashamed, embarrassed. I mean, think about how long he was there on the cross. How many hours? I'm not trying to sound crude, but 
in the realness of his humanity, because Jesus was a real human being, just like you and me. Don't you think that he, under real human shock and fear and bodily tremor, could have very possibly ended up expelling bodily fluid and perhaps even waste while on there? And all of that while unclothed before everyone's eyes. And no doubt, that would have made people despise him all the more. They would have been disgusted by him and felt that their eyes were too pure to look upon such public disgrace. This is the humiliation that the Son of God endured on the cross to become someone from whom men hide their faces as Isaiah 53 prophesied. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Why did he endure such shame and humiliation to the uttermost? Why did his death have to involve experiencing unspeakable disgrace and contempt? Because, friends, he was bearing our griefs carrying our sorrows and our shame that he might be for us stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. What you see in the shame of the cross, this is really the shame of your sin. The shame that God sees in you as you are naked before him and all the darkness and disgrace within laid bare. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Shame is a horrible feeling, isn't it? In many ways, it's actually the worst feeling on earth, perhaps more than death. Because isn't this why blackmail is so powerful and effective in controlling people? People would rather die than lose their reputation. Than to have everyone who, who loves and esteems them, who thinks well of them, to suddenly be horrified at what secret thing they've done. And then to turn their backs on them upon discovery of the facts. And sadly, in the moment of blackmail, some choose rather indeed to die. And their impulse And their fear is is that it is better to die and not have to face the full weight of their shame. Because that's how horrifying shame is, to lose every ounce of dignity and worth and acceptance. It is, as it were, to lose your very existence, your soul. I mean, look, can you imagine if everyone in this room, everybody in this room, suddenly turned their heads And every eye turned to you and stared you down. Everyone just looked at you, your spouse included, and said, we know everything. We heard what you did in the past. We heard about that thing that you never told anyone. I can't believe you did that. Imagine if every head here 
was looking at him shaking with disgust. Now, of course, this is just a thought experiment. The church should be the last place where anyone fears something like this happening. There's no place for judgmentalism in the church because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But do imagine for a moment, if this happens, how naked and ashamed would you feel? People disgusted by you. Everyone who once loved you now suddenly despise you because they have come to realize your true naked shame. This is the weight of sin and guilt. This is the horror of shame. And if you think it would be unbearable to be exposed and disgraced before everyone in this room, how much more before God to be disgraced before Him and to face His judgment. But friends, this is what Jesus came to do. This is the humiliation He subjected Himself to. Though being the God clothed with splendor and majesty, as Psalm 104 says, He was stripped naked of all garments and of all dignity and honor so that you might be clothed in His righteousness and grace. Romans 15, 2, Paul says that Christ did not please Himself, but just as it, is, as it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Jesus saying, the insults of those who insulted you, all of those insults have fallen on me. I have come to bear it. This is what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross. This is why he bore such derision and disgrace because he was taking the place of disgraceful sinners like you and me. And yet ironically, it is in the depths of this humiliation that his glory is most fully revealed in God's amazing grace and love for sinners. And it's because of His humiliation that His name is exalted with the highest exaltation because we love our Lord Jesus, who humbled Himself, who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and how we praise Him for stooping down so low to save us, how we thank Him for bearing our shame, how we adore Him for suffering infinite contempt for us, And so it's precisely through this shameful cross that we behold the explosive revelation of God's true glory and majesty. This, you see, this is the true holy of holies revealed. The true throne of God on Calvary, of which the inner room of the tabernacle was only a copy. Because on the cross, we behold the Lamb of God for sinners slain. And all of His people cry out in worship, worthy is the Lamb who was slain for us. This is God's glory, you see. What kind of God does this for sinners, His enemies? Who is like the Lord our God, bearing our shame, covering our nakedness, not by the garments of animal skins, but by the garments of His own flesh torn for us? Who is like the Lord our God, No one, but only our holy triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christian, 
Are you suffering from the shame of your sin? Does guilt ever weigh you down? Are you ever haunted by the darkness of your heart? Or do you ever doubt if God has truly forgiven you of some evil deed or thought in the past? Take a good look at the cross this evening. And Christian, be assured, be convinced, and be comforted that Jesus bore every shame of yours. Every last bit. There is none remaining for you to bear. He not only prayed the words of Psalm 69, but he lived them. He acted them out on your behalf. As it says in verse 19 of that psalm, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Christian, the infinite glory and dignity of Christ was defaced for your sake. He became an eyesore on your behalf. And he has clothed you that you might now be laid bare before him and be naked and unashamed. Praise be to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for us. And if you're here this evening and you have not turned to Jesus Christ by faith, look at this good news. Look at this Savior. What a Savior and friend we have in Jesus. Stop trying to hide your shame. Stop trying to atone for your sins, whatever creative way you think of to do. Stop trying to bear the weight of your sin and guilt. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. And put your trust in in the one who came to take the place of sinners who turned to him by faith. Be healed by his wounds and be forgiven by his grace. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your matchless wisdom in planning so inexplicable and rich a salvation for sinners like us. Lord, we are left without words as we think of Jesus Christ, the most excellent one, the perfection of all beauty and majesty, bearing such scorn and shame. Lord, that is so wrong. And yet that was precisely your will to rescue sinners like us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for his cleansing blood. And as we now prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, Lord, 
would you set apart these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup to now confirm for us and seal unto our hearts visibly and tangibly all that we have heard audibly that we might be assured of the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.